If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Scripture lesson this morning is a familiar story which preachers always hope you might hear again as if for the very first time. This is the conversion of Saul. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there is a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately 
he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Here ends this reading, inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The book of Acts is filled to the brim with conversion stories. Conversion, we don't use that word much around here, a little too evangelical. There's some concern maybe that if we say the word out loud too much, we risk catching something, like a revival. <laughs> we are reasonable, rational, measured congregationalists. Liberal Christians can get downright cranky about it. We've just about entirely removed the word from our vocabulary. But the book of Acts is littered with conversion stories. We can't avoid them. The most famous of those conversion stories is the conversion of Saul, who we know better as Paul, the Apostle Paul. And his conversion story is compelling enough to warm even our cold congregationalist hearts. It's a story that makes us even want to sing a little Hank Williams I saw the light, I saw the light, no more in darkness, no more in night, which we would have sung today, but most of us cannot be trusted to clap on two and four. <laughs> this text is the mother of all come to Jesus meetings. It has, as William Willimon said, been passed into the lore of Christianity to be lovingly retold and reiterated as the paradigmatic instance of conversion to Christianity. It has been immortalized in art thousands of times over. We know the story by heart, sort of. We know it in the way Flannery O'Connor wrote about it. I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. <laughs> so first, the text never says anything about a horse. Paul's horse is much like the donkey Mary rode in to Bethlehem on, completely imaginary. It's not in the text, we just made it up. Mary and Paul do have more than just an imaginary equine in common though, but we'll get back to that later. Second, Paul didn't convert to Christianity on the road to Damascus or anywhere else. Biblical scholars Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan explain, in a religious context, the word conversion has three meanings, not all of which apply to Paul. The first is conversion from being non-religious to being religious. The second is conversion from one religion to another. And the third is conversion within a religious tradition. Paul's experience was neither of the first two. Clearly, he was deeply religious before his ex Damascus experience. In his own words, he was filled with religious passion, zealous for the tradition of my ancestors, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Moreover, he did not convert from one religion to another. 
Not only was Christianity not yet a religion separate from Judaism, but Paul thought of himself as a Jew after his conversion and for the rest of his life. Paul's conversion was a conversion within a tradition, from one way of being Jewish to another way of being Jewish. This understanding of conversion is markedly less exciting than characterizing Paul's experience as lightning bolt radical personal transformation. And one is tempted to say is not even worth telling without that razzle dazzle. But just like we need resurrection stories, stories that tell us how to live again, we need conversion stories, stories that tell us transformation is possible. Without these stories, we are missing a fundamental piece of who we are as people of the way. The popular understanding of conversion is that it describes the experience of asking Jesus to be one's personal savior, but to use it exclusively in that way is to deny the conversion experiences of not only believers, but of doubters and seekers and even Paul himself. Conversion is the theological catch-all word we use for change. This is the most basic definition of conversion, to change, to alter, to turn. Conversion is not so much about winning souls, but about new beginnings of doing things differently, of taking an alternative path. It is important to remember that Paul's conversion story is but one in a long list just in the book of Acts. Conversion looks all kinds of ways, sometimes like Paul's story, but other times more like a bud unfolding petal by petal over days. How can one mark the exact moment at which the bud converts to being a flower? If we don't tell our own conversion stories, it is the equivalent of saying none of it matters, that there is no turning anything around, that no one can step back from the edge. Perhaps the most troubling implication of not telling conversion stories is that it implies that the church is satisfied with the way things are, not just with people, but the way the world is organized. A church comfortable with endless war has no need to preach conversion. A church that has no quarrel with the description of communion as when I drink my little wine and eat my little cracker has no need to preach conversion. A church that sees nothing wrong with another murdered, unarmed black teenager that accepts the inevitability of gun violence, that isn't bothered by mass incarceration, that church has no need to preach conversion. A church that asks its preachers to blur the line between the gospel and the status quo has no need for conversion. But a church dedicated to thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, preaches conversion. A church that believes a new heaven and a new earth is possible, preaches conversion. Conversion that is all at the same time a personal, communal, and political phenomenon. So we preach conversion, and then we wage a little conversion. 
Paul's story is definitely a conversion story, but it does not end on the road to Damascus. The church has been remiss in telling the story of Paul's conversion when it stops after the Jesus twinkle lights fade. The conversion is not complete just because Paul managed to stand up and brush off the dust from the road. If we are reading closely, we know that Paul is changed, but not immediately. Let me read it again. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This sounds terrible. When people do not eat or drink for days and days, it is a sign of depression, distress, even death. Paul does not sound converted. He sounds terrified and alone. But as the text says, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and uh, to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Ananias knows immediately that he has drawn the short straw in ministry. Saul, we are introduced to a few chapters before this one in Acts chapter 7. He is present at the murder of Stephen, who was stoned to death. Saul took care of the coats of the people throwing the rocks. The story of Stephen's martyrdom ends with the ominous lines, and Saul approved of their killing. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Today's passage begins by describing Paul as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and in possession of papers that authorized him to search for believers in Damascus and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. Saul needs no introduction to Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, at this moment Saul is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And don't you know, at that moment, Ananias deeply regretted not letting God's call go to voicemail. Um, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, did I stutter? Rough translation. And I imagine that Ananias under his breath cussed a little. Cause we've all been there. We're all ready to love one another, every single other. And then God actually asks us to practice what we preach. And it's hard, even when the person hasn't been trying to kill us or our friends. Like the time our office administrator called upstairs to my office to have me come down to help someone who was here for financial assistance. So I come bounding down the stairs in my praise well with others t-shirt. 
My bright and shiny minister self extends a handshake to give my standard greeting. Hi, I'm Lori. I'm one of the ministers here at Mayflower. How can I help you? Oh, he says, I'm looking for the pastor. <laughs> Immediately, my internal dialogue is not so bright and shiny. It's a little dark and twisted. I'm looking for the pastor is code for pastors are boys and, uh, well. It did not help that he was wearing a t-shirt that said, great story, babe, pass the remote. Should have let it go to voicemail. <laughs> but this conversation was happening just outside these sanctuary doors, where in this sanctuary we say every dang Sunday, love one another, every single other. So instead of telling them that, that he's welcome to find a boy preacher at another church to pump his gas, <laughs> I say, you're in luck, I am one of the pastors, how can I help? Perhaps Ananias heard whispers of the Mayflower benediction way back then, because he does, in fact, get up, go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas and looked for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Remember that Saul still cannot see. He hasn't had anything to eat or drink in days. Imagine just for a moment how isolated, how afraid, how utterly shook Saul must have been, knowing the terrible things he's done and the very vulnerable position he's in now, come to Jesus or not. And someone walks into the room. He doesn't know who it is. It's a stranger. A stranger who might go through his things, find the papers authorizing arrest. Maybe even that stranger's name is on that list. And then what? Then what is the stranger going to do? In a move that perhaps surprised them both, Ananias entered the house, laid his hands on Saul, and said, Brother, I can think of other names Ananias might have used on the man who had come to town to persecute the community. But Ananias called him brother. No litmus test, no demand for a creed, no secret password, no threats, no shaming, no heaping of burning coals on his head. Brother, a term reserved for people who are loved, cared about, counted as family. So I put to you that this is actually the moment of Paul's conversion, the moment of beginning, a new chapter, a new vocation, a new purpose, a new hope, and that beginning turned on the actions of someone who took seriously Jesus' charge to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We've heard this story before, of course. It is one of Luke's favorite themes, so it makes sense that we see it in this second book attributed to him, in the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we find Mary, a terrified, unwed, pregnant teenager, 
After the visit from the sparkly angel announcing her pregnancy, Mary does not jump for joy and praise God. Instead, the text says, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. Mary runs to Elizabeth's house, hoping her cousin will keep her from getting stoned or shamed to death. And the moment Mary crosses the threshold of Elizabeth's house, everything changes. When does Mary sing the Magnificat? When does she find her voice? When is she convinced that everything is going to be okay? After she gets help. When she finds refuge in the wake of being welcomed and embraced, it is then that Mary sings about being lifted up, about mercy, about the hungry being filled with good things. This is the linchpin of the story. So it is for Saul. It was not until he was called by name and cared for that everything changed. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus. How does Saul become Paul, the guy credited with some of the most powerful lines of grace in the Bible? One word, brother. The beloved community who rallied around Saul inspired him to make this conclusion. If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. One does not write these words without having first received that kind of love. Paul did, indeed, regain his sight and was filled with the Holy Spirit. So, beloved community, we have some conversion stories to tell, our own for sure, for there is not one of us here who couldn't stand some change in our lives. And we have conversion stories to help write. It starts by calling someone brother, sister, beloved, then loving one another in such a way that it becomes obvious that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We trust that whatever happens next will be much like what happened in Scripture, and we, too, will regain our sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even reasonable, rational, measured Congregationalists. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister 
at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.